Web Services. Welcome to the Cloud or Not podcast. We are your hosts, Andreas and Michael Wittig. We have been building on AWS since 2009. Follow along as we develop products like BucketV, Marbot, HyperEnv, and learn from our practice. This is episode number 85, and we are recording this on February the 1st in 2024. In case you're watching this live on YouTube or LinkedIn, feel free to ask your questions directly in the comments, and we will answer them during or at the end of the show. So, Andreas, um, we have a, a new blog post that you um, wrote uh, with an uh, interesting finding. So maybe you can talk a little bit about that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, let me start with that. So actually, it all started with um, I was looking into writing an IAM policy for granting access to uh, KMS. So the idea was that uh, Marbot, our AWS monitoring solution, um, creates um, a KMS key and so I needed to write an IAM policy for that and from that I really <laughs> I found so much uh, that I didn't know about KMS and IAM policies and so on and I ended up with the following so Michael um, KMS comes with two types of keys um, customer managed keys and the built-in default keys do you know um, the difference between those two key types so I think the like the major difference is that the key policy is is only changeable for the like the customer managed ones, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So so I think that's the main difference. So uh, with customer managed keys, you can also bring your own key materials. But I actually I never under, fully understood why this is important because you're storing the key material on AWS anyways. So I think it's just if you need control over how this key material was created, that's probably the, the reason for that. But yet the, the, biggest the biggest difference is you can define key policies for your customer-managed KMS keys. And um, the, those, those key policies are kind of interesting <laughs> because there are other resource-based policies on AWS. So there are, uh, for example, for an S3 bucket, it's a very popular uh, probably use case for resource uh, policies. So you can attach a bucket policy to a, a bucket and then basically grant access to S3 objects in the bucket, for example, um, using the key policy. Uh, and usually with all resource-based policies, you either grant access through the resource policy or through an identity policy that is attached to an IAM use or IAM role. But with a KMS uh, keys, this is different. So there, by default, or by default, you have to grant both the uh, access in the key policy as well as in the um, IAM policy, identity policy attached to someone. And um, the problem with that is, uh, because of this, it's possible that you lock yourself out of the key when modifying the key policy accidentally, or if you, for example, delete the IAM users or something referenced in there. And then the question is, how can you recover from such a key policy? And someone on, I was thinking about that. So actually, if you change the key policy, you can modify the key policy in a way that no one can access the key anymore. So it's basically just the same as deleting the key, right? Uh, but there is no 
mechanism. So for deleting keys, there's a mechanism in AWS that says you can schedule the deletion of a key, but it takes seven to 30 days until the key then gets deleted. But you can just change the key policy right away and it's in effect immediately. So I was thinking about a ransomware kind of attacks using key policies and stuff like that. And I was sharing that on LinkedIn and someone wrote, oh, that's not an issue. You can ask AWS support to reset the key policy if you accidentally have uh, locked out yourself from that. And I said, I cannot believe that this is possible. It's not possible that the human being at AWS is possible to modify my key policy to, to grant me access to this. Because that basically that yeah makes the whole the whole key policy kind of useless, right? So I was sticking a little into that. And what I find out um, that if you specify a key policy, it's actually possible to, yeah, to, 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 to do privilege escalation so that you are able to change the key policy even though the key policy says you are not allowed to do so. So that is what I actually found out. Uh, Michael, are you interested in how that works? <laughs> yes, I am. <laughs> did, I, did I get your attention already? Okay. So it's not really a hack or a security vulnerability. So the procedure is even documented in the docu AWS documentation. So I didn't know that, but, but now I know. <laughs> and you know as, as well. So how does it work? So let's say um, we have a key policy uh, attached to a key user and, and the only one that is allowed to administer the key is a user, an IAM user called Bob. Uh, and this user wants to make sure no one else can modify the key because it's a very sensitive key. You use it to encrypt very sensitive data and you don't want to, others to delete it and so on. So, so here's Bob with a key policy that only grants Bob access, administrator access to the key. Um, but now... Um, that, uh, the, the example goes like that. So Alice is, um, has also access to the AWS account. And she, by the way, she has administrator access to the account or almost administrator access to the account. We will see why this is important later. But because of the key policy, she does not have access to the KMS key. She cannot administer that. Yeah? So this is blocked by the key policy, actually. And so the question is, how can Alice now get access to the key, uh, even if she uh, is not allowed because of the, bucket po uh, the key policy. And it works like that. So first, Alice deletes the IAM user Bob. So this results in a key policy attached to the KMS key that grants no one access to the key anymore. So basically, if Alice deletes all IAM users or IAM roles that are attached or, or referenced in the key policy then no one can edit the key anymore. And now um, Alice opens an AWS support ticket and asks AWS support for help to reset the key policy because no one is able to change it anymore, the key. Uh, and AWS support says, oh, fine, not a problem. Um, we will do so for you. Uh, please create a new IAM user with a specific name. And then um, we will call you And you have to tell us, uh, basically, we, we verify that you are um, the right person to, to do such a key reset by calling you later. Okay. Um, Alice now updates the telephone number, the phone number uh, in the AWS account settings, 
which means AWS support will now call Alice. And Alice answers the phone and says, oh, it's fine. You can reset the key policy and grant the user that I created access to the key. And AWS support will do so. Um, so now Alice has access to a key that she formerly didn't have any access to because uh, the key policy that Bob specified. So that is basically how you can um, rework the, the key policy um, by opening a ticket to AWS support. So what's the trick? So when does this scenario work? It doesn't work in all scenarios. So it's important that, the, that Alice is able to delete all the users and all the roles that are referenced in the key policy. Otherwise, the whole thing doesn't work. Of course, Alice needs to be, update, uh, needs to be able to update the phone number of the account. And um, also, it's important that the key policy does not grant access to IAM in general. So you basically can use a specific policy to just um, basically do not use this key policy, grant the access management to IAM uh, or hand over the access management to IAM. And if that's in the key policy, then the whole thing doesn't work as well. Uh, but if you use uh, key policies uh, in the, I would say, original uh, way they were intended to probably, then this is possible if Alice is able to delete reusers and roles. Um, so this was kind of... Uh, scary to find that out that that is working because actually I wouldn't expect that a support engineer or whoever on AWS side is able to reset key policies manually and also the, the approval process is actually calling a phone number somewhere in my AWS account so I find that really a little scary and to me it doesn't seem to be very well sorted through actually so the question is, um, yeah, how to, to deal with that or how to mitigate that or I don't know. So it's a little, um, let's say like that, it lowers my trust in KMS a lot. Uh, and as this is an important service for encryption, this is not, not really good news in my opinion. Yeah, I see interest. But I have one question, like, is it like the process that was started? Is this like, does this feel like something that is kind of automated? Because I was also wondering if the support engineer can, like what what allows them to trigger the process, right? I mean, it, it can be, is it your text and somehow they, they pass it and see it's a KMS key a lockout problem and then he's allowed to start the process or who authorizes support to change your your, your policy, right? That's, do you get what I mean? Yeah, so I'm not. I mean, yeah. I'm not 100% sure, but I think um, it is. Um, so the support checks whether you locked yourself out mm -hmm. from from the key policy. So that as as soon as there is no other way to get access to the key without basically resetting the key policy, I think then they are allowed to start the process. That's what mm -hmm. what I think. I, I don't know 100%, but that's my mm -hmm. assumption at least. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay, Michael. Um, so let's proceed with the next um, uh, with the next topic. So you have been working on something completely different, and then got into uh, thinking about AWS. Yeah, that's right, Andreas. So I was like, um, as you as you know, we 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 kind of like for a long time, like since two thousand and nine, more or less. All our eggs are in the AWS platform basket, right? So we uh, heavily 
rely on AWS doing the right things. And a couple of years ago, we started thinking how could we make us a little less uh, dependent on AWS and basically spread the risk a little bit. And so we decided that we want to uh, start investigating other platforms. Um, and what that basically led to last year that we started using the Atlassian platform and we created two products for that, Attachment AV for Chira and Attachment AV for Confluence, which is basically an antivirus, anti-malware solution for Chira and, and Confluence on the cloud. And what we also do at, or what I'm also doing at the moment is, and I started that at the end of last year, is that we are looking into the Salesforce platform as well. And what I discovered while using both platforms from a developer perspective who develops apps for those platforms is that in both cases, you can integrate very nicely into their UI. So you could, you can create an app for Atlassian and you can create a user interface for that app that, that sits natively in the Chira or Confluence UI. So you don't really notice from the outside or from looking at it that this is not Chira anymore, it's your app basically, because it's on the same page um, and literally on the same page. Um, so what I did last week is, for example, I added a configuration page for Confluence and Chira for our app and it was first very simple to do and it looks in the same way than the rest of, of the product, like the Chira Confluence product. So it's it's really easy and nice. And this let me, or this kind of once again asked, or, or, or basically once again, I was asking myself why AWS doesn't allow us to customize their UI a little bit. So what I was thinking of is, for example, they now have this new homepage where they have widgets. So why is it not possible to add uh, custom widgets, for example, to the homepage? I mean, they have the AWS Marketplace. They could, they could use the AWS Marketplace for distribution. That could be one integration point. You could also just add another page like, like an S3 or EC2 service. You could add another page in the main navigation bar. Or even, I mean, more work, but even more integrated, you could, for example, say, okay, I want to add my custom action whenever an EC2 instance is selected. So when you click on the EC2 instance, then there is an actions drop down, and there you could add your own entry. And if you click that, your own custom um, action is executed. So this could be, uh, I think, a rich, a rich experience for all the use cases that AWS does not cover. And as we all know, AWS is not really interested in the in the in the details. So they 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 lack a lot of capabilities. Uh, that many people want and so they could just build their own capabilities but that's not possible at the moment and I really don't understand why and I'm asking that for a couple of years uh, because it seems to be so kind of straightforward to do that for AWS to allow uh, partners to extend their UI um, to help them kind of to implement all the small use cases that they are not interested in what partners might be um, so that was kind of my my um my idea and and yeah i don't know if that makes any sense andreas yeah absolutely so i think it that's that's really interesting so aws puts a lot of effort uh, into the aws marketplace those days so if you scroll for example through the aws news you will find new features that they release constantly and they're of course putting a lot of effort in their partner program um because it helps them to grow their um their business so it's it's very interesting why all those solutions in the AWS marketplace um, don't have any 
a way to integrate into the AWS management console. Um, and they have to build their own API, uh, their own UIs. And it's always a challenge because of the things like um, user access management, stuff like that. So yeah, it, it would be so easy to, to integrate it into their UI and have a building block system like others have. Yeah. Um, so very interesting why this is not uh, possible at all. Maybe we'll see something like that in the future. That would be, that would be really great. Okay. Um, so Michael, um, I have something, um, I had a, I had a new idea for the cloud on podcasts uh, and that's, we will try it first time today. So my idea is that we go over some of the AWS news uh, from the past 14 days since our last recording. And I will basically update you with some of the news that I uh, was thinking could interest you. Uh, I'm reading them to you and then you can basically react to them and tell me what you think. Um, so just, just answer quickly the first thoughts that come to your mind when, when going over that uh, news item, okay? Okay, so so the first one is um, AWS Code Build announces support for reserved capacity. So basically, the idea is so Code Build a CI/CD service for, um, by AWS. Uh, basically, formally, um, when you had a job to run there, it took a little, I don't know, a minute or something before the job started because it was just scheduled among their fleet of servers somewhere. And now, what you can basically have is reserved capacity, which means there is a machine running 24-7 for you and your jobs start immediately on that machine. So this is basically the new feature that is out now. So what do you think about that? I don't know if I need that. So <laughs> I, <laughs> I mean, the problem probably is the 24-7 part. So it, it seems to be like wasteful um, and therefore expensive, right? So I mean, I don't need that 24-7. I just needed working hours. Yeah, um, but probably there's no controls around so, that, so you pay for the twenty four seven thing. And yeah, you could. I think you can automate something to um, have that. So they okay. call it a fleet. So you can create it and um, delete mm -hmm. it. So you could have. I think if that's not a feature yet, you can build a lambda function or something to to okay. start it up or to delete it. And um, mm -hmm. you're paying for at, at a minimum for a full hour. And then I think per minute. So mm -hmm. it would be possible to have it only during, uh, I don't know, typical working hours or something. Mm -hmm. that, should, that should work in theory. Um, the, I, I checked the costs. So the smallest um, available instance uh, is a two v vCPU, three gigabyte memory one, mm -hmm. uh, which costs about $90 if you run it 24-7 for a month. So that's quite a lot. Um, mm -hmm. <laughs> um, so yeah, I think you need to... Uh, it probably makes sense to shut it down if possible. I, I don't think there is a built-in way to do so, but you could do that maybe with a, I don't know, a Lambda function or something. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, my second uh, thought basically is like after thinking about that for a while, I, I always wonder why they start to do things like that instead of just optimizing the, the startup time in the first <laughs> place. But uh, maybe they're out of ideas, right? So this is yeah. kind of the only, or they are out of, they need some money. So that could also be, Yeah, and the it's, point, it, I don't know. it's also interesting because it kind of relates to um, our our product HyperEnv for GitHub um, yeah. Actions. Uh, and there, 
so I came from that approach as well. So in the beginning, um, my first implementations were around um, spinning up instances and running multiple jobs on them, uh, keeping them, scaling them automatically, doing work hours and so um, but I find the approach to just spin up a machine when it's really needed uh, much more convenient and also you, d you don't have isolated machines for every workload. You don't have to uh, think about security issues uh, for yeah. isolating your workloads and stuff like that. I, don't, I have no idea how they do that actually. So I think it's probably, um, is it probably containers and firecracker? I don't know, um, but that's probably the their isolation layer they use here. Yeah, but uh, yeah, that's that's what I think. It's so easy to just spin up easy two machines when you need them. So why why bother? And the I don't know the thirty seconds or minute it takes until it starts the job. I don't know if that's really so important to optimize for that. But yeah, okay, okay. So the next one, Michael. This is this is something. Maybe uh, this will. I, I hope this brings something up in you. So Amazon ECS announces managed instance training. So I don't know if you remember back in the days when we tried to automate managing clusters of EC2 instances for ECS. Uh, so this was always so so hard. We have CloudFormation templates. I think we had several implementations of that. So what to do when instance scale up and scale down, how to move containers to other machines before you terminate them, how to do rolling updates of an AMI and so on. And now, Michael, this feature is available <laughs> as a built-in feature in ECS. Very cool. So, so now if you need to roll out a new AMI, uh, ECS will, uh, before that, shift the running containers on the machine to other uh, instances in the cluster. So this is now a built-in feature in ECS. So I don't know how many years <laughs> it took them to implement that, but here it is. And I th yeah, what do you think? <laughs> yeah, I think that's that's definitely a useful feature. Um, the only problem is that now I'm not interested in it anymore <laughs> because yeah. I'm not using ECS anymore. <laughs> so who is I mean, using EC2 with yeah. ECS? Yeah, five years too late, but still, yeah, they're working on it, right? Yeah, that's good. Yeah. So yeah, I think now it's completely we we have completely moved away from managing EC2 for ECS because it all runs on Fargate now. On Fargate, yeah. So. Yeah. But yeah. But yeah, yeah, here it goes. Okay. So the next one, Michael. So AWS announces higher read IOPS for Amazon Elastic File System. So again, they are <laughs> increasing the throughput and now it delivers forty percent higher read IOPS per file system. So what do you think about that announcement, Michael? Yeah, I mean that's always great. Um, so and it it works for all file systems, um, so you don't have to change anything or something. So it's just there. It's always great. I mean that that is that is that is always great. Yeah. The, the interesting thing here is when they started with e, uh, with EFS, I think many of us tried it out, and we all ran into issues with the performance of the file system. And over the years, I don't know, I I haven't counted them, but there were. At least ten or so announcement that they improved performance significantly. So I really um, applaud them that they are that they are investing into making the system faster and higher throughput, lower latency, and so on. I think around reInvent they had announcement around yeah. the latency. So it's really cool that they are. It's a kind of a boring service, but an important one, especially for uh, legacy systems that you want to migrate to AWS. So I'm happy to see that. They are innovating and improving here. Cool. Yeah. 
Okay, Michael, the next one is a, another ECS announcement. So I don't know, the ECS team, ha ECS team has woken up. Um, so they shipped all their features uh, two months after reInvent. So, <laughs> <cool. laughs> so, <laughs> so here's another one. ECS introduces support for automatic traffic encryption with TLS certificates. Um, so this uses um, the Service Connect uh, feature, which is one of the many features you can build your service mesh in ECS. And um, you can now have that uh, TLS encrypted um, with uh, certificates managed by AWS. What do you think, Michael? Yeah, so as you said, uh, the only thing that, that, that is um, kind of confusing me is that there are so many options. Um, but yeah, basically, if I have containers running and they want to talk to each other, this can now be encrypted automatically, which is great. But I think, as always, the problem with those kinds of encryption mechanisms that AWS builds is they do not work with the for free certificates, right? So there is a catch. Yes. So how it works is, so first of all, Service Connect basically is, um, is, a prox is using the proxy container. So to deploy the proxy container to all your tasks. And then I think it's, I don't know if it's using Envoy under the hood or something like that. And basically, they build their own backend to manage those proxy settings and roll them out. And what they're now doing is they integrate with AWS Private CA, so the Private mm -hmm. Certificate Authority. And um, so my first thinking was, oh, that's expensive, because I know that <laughs> this can be very expensive, and I looked it up. So um, a Private CA costs you uh, $400 per month. But the good news is there's now an, a new option. So the thing, things changed with uh, private CA as well. And they have now another offering for $50 per month, uh, which gives you short-lived credentials. And this is exactly what you need here. So, they even, mm -hmm. um, so the ECS team even um, recommends to use those short-lived certificates. So yeah, it costs you 50 bucks to, to use those certificates for um, encrypting the traffic between your... Um, containers so I think yeah that's maybe fine um, okay that's how it how it works okay Michael let's move on to the next one uh, so this is more an enterprise feature so Amazon inspector now supports CIS benchmark assessments for operating systems in EC2 instances what are you still right. Michael <laughs> but, I, but I think we have, so customers ask us about, about this hardening our yeah. instances with the CIS benchmark from time to time for Bucket AV. So I think it yeah. could help us actually to run those benchmarks because I think before that yeah. there was a kind of an AWS related benchmark only. And now we have the official one that probably the industry yeah. uses. So that makes maybe sense. So the, yeah, so basically I, what I, what I, I was just, and thinking about that so i or remembering that so uh, a couple of years ago for bucket av i looked into how we can make amazon linux uh, comply with the sys benchmark because some customers were asking for that and i was also looking for tools and i think inspector had some capabilities but maybe they are now better or something yeah that's okay that's great for us so we can just automatically run that and and whenever we violate something we see it the other problem with the sys security benchmark thing for Amazon Linux is that like I can remember that I opened up the PDF and I started implementing it but it really gets very 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 I mean I basically <laughs> I stopped kind of looking at the PDF when they told me how to create partitions on my disk and all kinds of things ah, so it's okay. 
it's from a world where machines were running for 10 years or so it's not mm-hmm. auto scaling or anything like that right i mean they i don't know if they have updated that so i hope uh, because otherwise i will still not implement all their checks because they mm-hmm. don't make sense yeah, but it, i think yeah. it's also from a world where you had multiple workloads running on the same machine that's something we probably usually do not do anymore so a lot of those things are probably from coming from that okay yeah okay so yeah but Let's it's see. interesting so I'm, i will i will probably <laughs> test it out it so that's our, the first yeah. one that i will test yeah <laughs> <laughs> okay. okay so the next one is amazon eks and now supports kubernetes version 1.29 what do you think <laughs> it's <laughs> i don't have any opinion on that andreas you don't have any opinion you're not using uh, eks at all um I found one interesting, so one thing mm-hmm. um, came to mind. So first of all, I've seen some people writing, oh, I'm, I'm now updating all my clusters to version 1.29. Uh, so I thought, oh, crazy, this is something you have to do if you're using EKS. You have to upgrade your clusters from time to time and, and schedule a maintenance window and stuff like that mm-hmm. uh, and see if it works or not and test it in test environments first and in production. So a lot to do. Um, when you compare it with ECS. Mm-hmm. And then the other thing I'm, I'm, I was looking up is, so this is really, um, so the, the Kubernetes release uh, was released on um, the January the 17th. Mm-hmm. So they are really close to the releases of the open source mm-hmm. uh, software. So I remember back in the days, it took them a month to get out with the release on AKS after Kubernetes published it. So I think that's that's good news for, for all of you who are using AKS. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Uh, one more thing, Michael. This is the mm-hmm. last one uh, for, for this show. Um, provision capacity for API limits are now available in Amazon Cognito. And the thing is here um, that you can now increase the built-in quotas for the API, so the requests per second that you can do for Cognito. Uh, if you have a, a huge workload, you can now increase those uh, quotas. So this is the news here. Any thoughts? All right. That's great. So my thought is that <laughs> someone at AWS has uh, probably envisioned a provision capacity strategy, Andreas. <laughs> because now in every every item here, I see provision capacity. So they are probably uh-huh. going to add provision capacity everywhere. Do you so think it's a they, new they feature? Don't. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I didn't understand the pricing model completely. I think you have to pay for modifying the quota as well. So I, I, I didn't really understand it. So I've seen that right. the Burning Monk has been writing about it. So you check, <laughs> check out his blog post. He was complaining about it. So uh, I looked it up. So the, the quotas are quite high. So you can use authentication. The default is 120 uh, requests per second. Mm-hmm. So I think you're not getting into those areas with most of the applications that <laughs> you're building out there. But for those who do, um, there's now possibility to to increase that, um, right. costing you probably an arm and a leg, but uh, in general, <laughs> <laughs> it's at least possible. And I think it's important to... Uh, so many times when you had to make a decision which service we can use or not, it's important that you have the possibility to grow because if you have services from AWS where it's just not impossible to increase the quota, you're kind of stuck using it because you then have to migrate away to a complete other service in the future. So you're not starting with it anyway. So I think that's, that's good news for Cognito. So a, a, little, a little progress is, um, <laughs> is happening with Cognito. So we had an announcement regarding i think the groups or something um, and now we have another one so some someone started picking up the backlog 
uh, on the Cognito service. That's maybe also great. Let's see. <laughs> the, okay. the most important item they found was someone needs provision capacity. Okay, let's yeah. do it. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe this was the <laughs> thing on the list. I don't know. Not sure. Maybe the, the one you can uh, increase revenue the most. Yeah. Um, okay, Michael. So um, that's it. That's it for today. Um, we will be back soon. Subscribe to our newsletter, podcast, or the YouTube channel to make sure you're not missing the upcoming episodes. And we're also looking forward to your feedback. Hello at cloudonout.io or find us on LinkedIn and Mastodon. Again, as always, you will find all the links in the show notes and the video description. So thanks a lot for joining us. Thanks. Bye. Bye.